This podcast is produced by Arts Council England. For more content like this, visit artscouncil.org.uk or soundcloud.com forward slash Arts Council England. Um, if we could make a start. Um, hello, my name is Liz Pugh um, and I'm chairing this session which is on artists and communities. Um, if what we're going to do is have um, uh, the, both the speakers are going to make their presentations. Um, then we'll have um, a question and answer session. And then I'm thinking that we'll um, try and just get you into smaller groups, perhaps taking up different parts of our not very conducive to small groups space. Um, and then we'll come back and, and pull back some of the things that, that you've been talking about. Um, I'll begin by introducing Dan Thompson. Um, Dan very much believes that small is beautiful and works in a um, DIY sort of way. Um, he's come up from Worthing. He was very much part of the riot cleanup in, in London and is going to um, present about the, the way he makes work happen. I'm, I'm going I'm to go mobile, so hopefully one of these will... Is it on? Have we got technical support, please? Got that? Yeah, is that working? Yep. Excellent, thank you. Yeah, um, my name's Dan Thompson. I'm an artist, writer. Um, let's get onto the, the slides. Here we are. Social artist, artistic director of revolutionary arts, um, artist, writer, entrepreneur, dad to uh, three community activists. And, and that all sounds irrelevant, but it's not to me, because we're asked to talk about artists and communities today. And um, for me, I mean, Liz, Liz Forgan spoke about the restless innovation of artists, and that's what I do. I'm always doing different things. I get bored really, really easily. Um, so I'm always trying to do something different. And what interested me about the idea of artists and communities is that it separates the two, that, that somehow artists aren't part of communities, they're something different. At which point in the average day, as artist, writer, entrepreneur, dad, activist, at which point am I artist, at which point am I community, at which point am I running my business? All the things, they're just one blur. I am part of those communities. Um, the reasons I'm here today are, are twofold. Um, I think, well, threefold, really. One is that I complained a lot about State of the Arts last year, <laughs> not having any artists in it, and um, kicked up quite a fuss, I think, and kind of got, got in people's way a bit. But mainly because um, the work I do, I've been doing for 10, 11 years. But last August, after the riots, I'm the guy that organised riot cleanup. Um, that was a mass community action organised entirely through Twitter um, with no leaders. Although I organised it, I wasn't in charge. Nobody was in charge. What happened was there was an idea that needed to be done, that, that needed its time. And that idea was that local people would get a broom, help their local shopkeeper and clean up after the riots that had happened. Um, I did a presentation to Nesta yesterday and the statistics were just amazing. That I think 12,000 people tweeted using the riot cleanup hashtag um, overnight, we reached seven million people. We had thousands out on the streets across London, and then the idea spread across the UK 
with Manchester riot cleanup and so on happening as well. All of that was done without any organisation. There was no organisation. There was me, a mobile phone and a laptop and a hashtag on Twitter. Um, that's what people do now. They don't need an organisation. They, they just need the idea. Clay Shirky, who, who's a great thinker, said that organising without organisations is where we're going in the future. Um, David Edgar earlier said that we need organisations to reach audiences. Well, we reached 7 million p people with a laptop and a mobile phone. Do you need organisations? Questionable, I think. The other thing that I've been involved in is the Empty Shops Network, which is the creative reuse of empty spaces on our high streets. We've just completed um, three months of workshops, meetings, research in a project called Pop-Up People. I've got copies of the report here for you today and some badges if you'd like a badge as well. Um, that was our first project funded by Arts Council England in 11 years of working um, and they gave us uh, £10,000 to do that project. And again, I think that was just because it got to the point where it was slightly embarrassing that I was out there doing this stuff and they were referring people to us and talking about us in documents that had never funded us. But they did, and it gave us that, that chance to go out, really, and test ideas, research, look at things. Um, we visited a whole load of towns across the country. Bedford is one of them. Um, we Are Bedford had the most remarkable branding. Really, really slick, really neat. Um, what became clear, though, was that all the places that we went to, the empty shops weren't the important thing at all. The spaces, the, the buildings weren't what was important. It was the people that were getting out there and doing things. Ed Vasey said we need artists in as many places as possible, and that's exactly what pop-up people did. So what, what did we find with those people? Um, we found that they were very local. They were very interested in their local town, their local community. They were entrepreneurial in whatever they did. They were generating income, attracting funding. Most of them had uh, broad skills that they were bringing in from different professional backgrounds. They came from a diverse range of places and were all, without exception, plate spinners. They were juggling lots of different projects at once. Um, Leeds was another one, and that's where the, the plate-spinning term came from, was uh, Culture Vulture's blog up in Leeds, who ran an event called Plate Spinners. Really local, really passionate about their town, and a lot of them were coming back to um, being interested in their town at some kind of life-changing point. A lot of them had had children or family or given up one career and moving back. And all of them were working in a really agile way, creating partnerships, networks as they needed, and embracing the temporary nature of what they did. And that was making the work really sustainable. Pop-up people are very sustainable because they don't have the costs that an organisation has. They just get out there and they find whatever they can to make it happen. Experimenting, prototyping, testing new ideas the whole time. One of the projects that we've run with the Empty Shops Network was Workshop 24 up in um, South Kilburn in North London. And that was a, a really good example of an empty shop project. We went in there, small amount of funding. You can see how full the calendar was um, that, that we were running there. We ran 30 or 40 different projects out of one empty shop. But we were never there as artists in the community. We were there as part of the community. The day that we got the keys to the shop, we were just another shop on that street. We were just another bunch of people living in that community and working in that community. There was no difference between us as artists and the community. So that really, my, my conclusions are, um, we're all living 
portfolio careers, networked lives, and in the lifestyle we have today, the boundaries of work, life, leisure, all of those boundaries are so blurred that it's irrelevant. Um, we need to see Ed Vasey and government catch up with this stuff, really. Ed, Ed spoke about the difficulties of working in government that doesn't encourage collaboration. All we're seeing is collaboration. Pop-up people was all about creating collaboration across the country. We're seeing the worst of this at the moment up in Glasgow, where Glasgow City Council are bringing in entertainment licences for art exhibitions. So anyone that wants to exhibit art in an empty shop or any other space now has to go through the same planning um, regulations as, as a stage show or whatever. Utterly ridiculous. Um, we don't need more bureaucracy at this time. We need less. There's no difference between artists and communities. There's no difference between artists and businesses. And those kind of bizarre planning decisions just enforce those boundaries and those lines that aren't there. Artists and communities, yes, work well together. But communities don't need those artists to become other organisations. Um, museums, gallery arts organisations, a lot of those are now belonging to the past and have got to find new, flexible, adaptable ways of working and become part of the community, not something separate to it. Yes, artists, yes, communities, but not separate. Thank you. Thanks very much, Dan. Um, just adding on to that, um, Nick Johnson, who is the um, director of... Uh, um, property development company called Urban Splash, who are based in the northwest but make um, make property transformations all over the country, um, was doing a presentation a couple of weeks ago in Carnarvon and was talking about the fact that for property developers there is no future for the next 10 years. They're not going to be building any buildings, but they are going to be looking at pop-up events and um, ways of transforming space that is temporary and impermanent. And I think that chimes, um, interestingly, what you're saying is chiming with what some of those companies are thinking about. Next, we've got um, Rosie Kay. Um, Rosie is a choreographer, has um, her own company, and was a, a rain fellow, and is going to talk to us about um, her work in the field of dance and, and connectedness, I think. Different projects that engage different communities in quite different ways to make pieces of work. Um, one project involved the British military, and resulted in a tour of production of Five Soldiers. The Great Train Dance involved training local professionals as dance leaders and involved over 300 participants on a local heritage railway. And Mind Out provided dance training in three mental health settings and resulted in a performance about the stigma of mental health. What motivates me are deep artistic questions about the world we live in and my understanding of it. I need to be really engaged and inspired by a subject so that my research stimulates me into exploring worlds which I might not be familiar with. Um, work with a community must be genuine in order for it to be both authentic and rewarding for both sides. Uh, what I won't compromise, though, is the quality of the work. My standards stay the same, and community input should really sort of add to the quality of the work itself. I want to make art about the real world, in, in the real world, uh, with real messages to today's audiences. And I hope to try and increase audience understanding of difficult or taboo subject matter and aid empathy and understanding through my work. So the first 
project is um, Five Soldiers. This was inspired by a dream of losing a limb on a battlefield and connecting the horror of my real leg injury sustained on stage to the risk a soldier puts his or her body through in warfare. Um, I felt physically connected for the first time to the horrors of what was at the time the Iraq War and wondered if the choreographer's knowledge of the body could lead to a deeper understanding of how and why soldiers do it. Dissatisfied with contemporary media accounts, I saw that the medium for their job was like a dance of the body. I wanted to gain a first-hand understanding for their training in order to know what it might feel like, the thrill, the adrenaline, the pride, as well as the pain and the injury. Um, This profound insight led me, eventually, two years later, to an attachment to the 4th Battalion, the Rifles, a battalion hit quite heavily by Iraq and in battle training prior to deployment in Afghanistan. I was exposed to extraordinary training scenarios, first as an observer, spending four days and nights hallucinating with sleep deprivation on a cold and wet Dartmoor, to becoming a participant as trust was gained, learning to fire a live rifle and even joining in a two-day battle against the Coldstream Guards in an abandoned village on Salisbury Plains. I'll never forget the scream of horror as an attacking soldier realised I was a fucking female. This was the male preserve of the infantry, but I gained great insight, not only into the life and training of a soldier, but my own capacities as a human. I did not like everything I saw in myself, but by getting my hands dirty, I understood the draw as well as the fear of battle training. I followed this with a spell in Headley Court Rehabilitation Centre and Selly Oak Hospital. The reality actually really hitting home when a colleague I'd met at Four Rifles returned from Afghanistan a changed man after he lost both his legs in an IED blast. Visiting him in hospital, despite working with amputees at Headley Court, was a big shock. The shock was not just with his changed body and future life, but as I looked around the unit and the ward and saw it fill with literally hundreds of severely injured men, still laughing, still joking, still full of banter. Being allowed such privileged access changed me. Um, While I detested the horror of war, I could not help but see the soldiers as humans and the human adventure and human cost of warfare. When it came to creating full-length production, from this experience, I was sometimes paralysed with fear. It was no longer research, but representation of current and very controversial war. I became extremely practical in my military training. I trained the dancers with TA weekends, invited weapons experts, drill sergeants, and we had a 19-year-old injured soldier join us as a consultant. The work itself was a big success for the company. We've been touring for two years throughout the UK and internationally to Spain and Germany. We also created a 13-angle interactive website of the film of the work, which is really using the web as a medium to watch dance, to trying to use it artistically to see dance in a different way. Five Soldiers was even featured on Radio 4 Today programme, stunning that dance got in the news and a personal highlight to my parents. However, it was bringing the work back to the military that we had some of our most moving and profound performances. We transformed the Rifles Drill Hall in Mayfair into a black box theatre and performed the work to a very mixed crowd of London dance audiences, soldiers, officers and retired generals. We had three rows of uniformed soldiers suddenly turn up at South Shields. I sat squirming in my seats, wondering how they were going to get through an hour and 20 minutes of contemporary dance. But not only did they stay for it, they actually all stayed for the post-show talk. And a sergeant of 20 years' experience stood up and told us and the otherwise civilian audience that we had fucking nailed it. The work certainly had an impact on the military in a strange kind of reciprocal kind of relationship. In April last year, we were invited to Paderborn in Germany to perform at the NATO Five Rifles base in a converted cinema 
in the barracks. We performed to pre-deployment troops and their families. And this performance was commissioned by a rather enlightened major who realised that her husband's battalion were facing a deployment in Afghan that would result in about one in four returning injured. With an average reading age of nine, many soldiers would not read the three-inch manual, get three-inch thick manual given to soldiers and their families to prepare them, and most would resort to the soldier's superstition of best not think about it. As she put it to a letter afterwards, they do need to face their demons because it really might happen. To play a part in the real mental training and preparation of soldiers going to war was quite mind-blowing and not particularly comfortable either. We are facing their demons for them. While nobody got hurt, dancers came back to life and walked afterwards. For soldiers and families, this experience of performance opened up the channels of communication in the military support systems. They began to prepare mentally, physically and financially for the worse. Our work did not take our provocative, overt stance on the wars, which was a really fine line to tread between arts audiences and military audiences. No matter how utterly barbaric I saw the maiming and killing of young men for political aims, it is not the soldiers that send themselves to war, but the politicians who send them out, and our society that picks up the pieces of broken lives. I wanted to humanise the wars that seem so depersonalised to us in civilian society. So this was a really hard community to get into. It was really hard to get into in the first place. It took me two years of trying before a retired major general saw the argument about a war choreographer. Um, It stays a very locked and guarded community. Once inside the environment, it, it wasn't really easy to kind of gain the trust of the soldiers. I was really tested before they let their guard down. I think a bit of dancers' training helped here. Head down, do as you're told, keep up, don't take too much shit. Once I got the research and the access, when we made the work, we had to get it right, both to an arts audience to gain any kind of critical acclaim and audience responses, but also to the military. We really wanted to be authentic and to touch raw nerves to those who really do it as a job and profession. I think we succeeded. We'll talk about briefly the Great Train Dance, a totally different project. Um, this was two years of planning, resulted in a wonderful large-scale dance in, on and around the Seven Valley Railway. And we trained regional artists, um, involving them in the full creative process. We helped them recruit their own participatory groups. They then choreographed a three-minute dance that would form clues along the journey between Kidderminster and Hiley. I choreographed the professional cast, the musicians, and 25 CAT students, which is Centre for Advanced Training Students, Dance Students. They set up the story, performed in the train, and they all reformed together with the participatory groups in a grand finale at the end. And the audience got taken on this absolutely magical journey through the English countryside, on the maps, on the lookout for dance clues. They had to watch all the dancers outside to form the puzzle and find the boy and reach the conclusion in a sort of romantic time-travelling tale. And over 300 participants from the whole of the region of the West Midlands uh, were involved in this project. For me, what was really exciting was the logistics. Thinking of Robert Wilson last night, a moving train through time and space, the logistics, the training, the minute-by-minute planning really, really engaged me mentally. Um, And as a community project, I really, really took seriously the training given to the dance leaders and leaving a legacy so that they got involved in a professional sort of big-scale production. Young people got a chance to perform alongside professionals. Professionals learn educational skills, which is really important in a freelance dancer's career. And I I learned how to do a large-scale work. 
Um, in the end, it had to be of the highest quality again because this was being reviewed by National Dance Press. And I don't think they were going to be that considerate to the age, the mass age, sort of the average age of all the participants. But again, we got great, great sort of reviews from this. And the um, final project is a, a variation. It's called Mind Out, and I made this in collaboration with a theatre company, Community Vibe. And the aim at first was to offer dance provision to hard-to-reach people in mental health settings. So that was um, within a residential hospital, a forensic unit for young people, and a community group. But I added a twist in that, apart from the weekly dance sessions, we'd also form a professional sort of level company, and then they would go on to perform at the Patrick Centre in the Hippodrome, um, staging a work about the stigma of mental health. Um, this was a really kind of incredible project to work on. The participants gained so much. We started really slowly with fitness, with sort of stamina and mobility, but gently, gently added more creative tasks, choreography, partner work, meaningful tasks related to the stigma of mental health. Um, performing is quite a vulnerable act, but the, these, these people performed with such incredible beauty in front of hundreds and danced with it sort of ease and grace and, and talked and danced about their own mental health issues. Um, and so the, the impact for that was, was both in sort of developing their, their sort of confidence, but also the ownership of the issues that they kind of felt were being stigmatised. So the future, I've got two community projects I'm interested in I'm working on, and leading on from Mind Out, I'm working with the University of Oxford and their um, biocultural variation and obesity unit. And we're looking at an, anorexia, uh, disordered eating and obesity um, I've also started sort of preparation work, new work, There Is Hope, which is looking at faith and morality, particularly with young people, particularly fascinated with working with youth groups and faith groups in the Birmingham community, particularly after the riots um, that had quite a big effect on, on the city. Um, my conclusion is, is, is none of this is theoretical. It's incredibly practical work, hands-on work. It takes so much time and effort to get the contacts, make the cold calls, gain a tiny little bit of entry and win people's trust. And you kind of need to have your idea incredibly close to your heart because you'll need to convince every single person along the way about what you're doing. And you are going to face a lot of resistance. In fact, if you don't face resistance, you're probably not being original enough, or that's what I kind of tell myself. So I battle alone with my self-doubt and my questioning and my fears. But people do get it eventually, and that means so much. It does take financial support. I was very luckily supported by the Rain Foundation to do my secondment with the army. And it takes a lot of time and planning. You can't rush it. You can't rush, rush trust. Even really small projects take a year or two to get off the ground, but the results can be profound. So just to end, it, it's, it's that working with other people pushes you beyond yourself. It challenges your views, your preconceptions, and it makes you really look at the outside world and see it with new perspectives. The arts can reflect and portray the present and perhaps it can even change the future by helping to break down barriers, challenge prejudice and build bridges between hard-to-reach sectors of society. Art can have the ability to change how people think, to change how people see and to change how people feel. Thank you. Sorry, I'm rushing. Great. <laughs> no, definitely. So, um, really provocative um, thinking there from, from both Dan and Rosie. Um, 
I was particularly interested in that whole idea of morality as a motivation and to what extent um, we in this room um, feel that there is a need for any sort of um, discussion around morality in terms of our, our work as artists with communities, with communities, within, without. Um, obviously today is a conversation between all of us and um, it is now beholden on all of you um, to make that a reality by um, asking questions. Um, I'd ask you please to just say who you are and, um, and where you come from um, independently or, or as an organisation um, and get the conversation going. So first question please. Great. We need mics for this, don't we? Yeah, speak up or get the microphone. Hi. We have, um, um, more house lights as well, so if there yeah. is any more way that we can see everyone in the room, that would be helpful. Well. And perhaps, yeah, just, just if you could take out. our one down a fraction. Um, Brilliant. Thank you. Um, Rob Howell from Mailout, with mailout.co, the national online resource and magazine for participation in community arts. Um, arts Council England give about 7.5% of their funding to participatory and community arts of their core funding. Given what Dan said about organisations and not needing organisations, this is something we should be worried about. Um, Are I, you worried, Dan? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a heretic in this in that I feel at the moment that, that from where I'm standing, never having had funding or core funding, there's actually more arts activity going on than ever before. Um, and I think the challenges of town centres and high streets have meant that a lot of that work is moving into much more visible spaces than it had happened in before. Um, yes, we need funding, but the funding needs to go to networks to building partnerships to, to really giving people the funds to do it themselves Rosie uh, well it's interesting actually because the great train dance and mind out I was just realizing were funded for through dancing for the games as part of the culture olympiad and so there was that element of professionals working participatory and it really was brilliant to have that opportunity and also, interestingly enough, um, when I applied for funding to do research for There Is Hope, working with faith groups, communities and youth groups, we were unsuccessful. So, um, yeah, it's an issue. It's an issue. Like I say, it takes time and, and a bit of money, not a lot. Um, yeah. Mm, I think, I think I, we need to make a case for the argument for yeah. that. I think we're also um, all, you know, loaves and fishes masters, aren't we, in terms of turning tiny amounts of investment into um, extraordinary works of art that engage people in um, massively. <sighs> Gets tiring, though, doesn't yeah. it, that? Yeah. So, next question, <laughs> yes. Hi, Bev Adams, uh, Faces uh, Street and Community Art. I think one of the problems in answer to this question is uh, quite often participatory arts work is sort of invis invisible, unsexy, not the stuff that gets on the uh, film and video screens, but it's all very valid work that nurtures art in a great range of people. And therefore, I would advocate for an increase in that 7.5% because it's really reaching people. Mm -hmm. Mm. I think I'd advocate abolishing the term participatory and community entirely <laughs> and let's just talk about arts because I think as soon as we put <coughs> these terms in 
it, it just it, it creates the bunkers and the silos that makes it even harder to break out. And actually, good art is good art. Good yeah. artists are good artists. Let's let's take away those boundaries and stop making this something less. I mean, th- let's not forget Arts Council was set up with, with one aim. When it was set up, Arts Council had one aim, which was to fund the Royal Opera House. That was the point of Arts Council England. You know, that, that's what it was there for. Yeah, I mean, we carry a, patri- a patrician view of, of the arts is our, you know, is carried around on our backs, isn't it? Yes. Um, Jim Tuff, I work for the Arts Council of England. <coughs> this is my last day. <laughs> 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 so it's poss- possibly a good time to make comments on some of this. But no, I mean, I, I've worked for the Arts Council of England and the Scottish Arts Council, and I come from a participatory arts background, but I agree those terms are becoming a bit weary. I mean, one of the things I think that's important that we're trying to do um, is to challenge the orthodoxy of the mainstream, those institutional kind of monoliths, if you like, to get it, to get that responsibility, that wider civic responsibility. So I wouldn't um, just see our investment in, if that's right, those 7.5% of the the funds that go to individual organisations. There's a wider battle to be fought, if you like. The other thing is, and and it was mentioned by Ed Vesey, the programme we're looking at, Creative People in Places, is going to be a real challenge to us and to all of you because it is about absolutely genuinely putting local people at the forefront of deciding their own creative destinies, futures or whatever. And I think that's a big game changer that I hope, you know, folk in this room who are clearly interested in this area of work can rise up to that occasion. But we are, if you like, trying to put our money where our mouth is in that regard, but the expertise lies with you, and I hope you'll get involved in those programmes. Can I just pick up on that that point that you say you are um, challenging the the larger organisations um, Presumably that's when you're making your funding allocations, you are doing that with strings attached. Can you give us some examples of how that balance is shifting? Well, it's a hearts and minds thing. I mean, uh, you know, to put strings attached and funding agreements is one thing. What's more meaningful in the long term is folk to get it, to see that their leadership role, you know, their civic responsibility goes beyond the kind of orthodox forums in the orthodox places. So, you know, one of the things I think that we've done that's good is to lay out our ambitions over this 10-year strategy. So things like the Creative People in Places programme or anything else should have that perspective. It should be about building those relationships. But yes, I mean, all our guys, all our relationship managers will be talking to folk about how they... Um, in their own way, and we need to allow for that diversity of practice and history and, and where folk are at to, to unfold it in its own way, to how they begin to take on these responsibilities. And I do see them as responsibilities. And that's my view. It's an investment of public money. And so the responsibility goes that, that there's a, a resonance with public interest that comes with that. But I think, you know, we should all continue to be vigilant and agitate for it because it's, it's a long process I think. Okay. I think I think there's one quick point I'd like to bring mm. out of that which is interesting for me is that you spoke about programs and getting people to apply to programs. Having just gone through my first arts council application, I got ten grand. I probably spent two grand's worth of my time and admin to get that ten grand. So actually 
how do we reshape those programmes and those funding streams to give funding direct to people that can do good work without creating that onus of they have to be an organisation, they have to they have to shape themselves to be an organisation and fill in those questions and work that way. Mm. Okay. Mm. Um, without getting too diverted on the funding issue, <laughs> um, let's. We've got a speaker over there and a question at the further back. So. I think there's a really simple solution to the question you asked of how could Arts Council England do this in that, that comment, which is that what Arts Council England could do is accept that rather than its staff being relationship managers, they are experts and they are clever and they know what they're doing and they get good at their field, and say to them, you have a budget. Just like local authority arts officers or anybody else, you have a budget. And you can use that budget at your discretion. It doesn't have to be big, but give that budget to help people write arts applications. Write the funding applications. Say you can have £200 to cover a day of your time to sit and write the funding applications. And actually, you know, that, that would be a good way to do it, I think, and easy and, and achievable. Mm. OK, mm. over there. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Not many people do. Oh. It's, Okay. Um, yes, because I, I will say something about that, even though my role as chair is obviously not to speak, but to <laughs> lubricate the oils of conversation, the wheels of conversation. Um, 
Yeah, Walk the Plank's been making work for 20 years and we um, put, we make work that we try, we try to make work that resonates with the places that we are making it in. We, we started with a ship, which meant we were itinerant and um, now we make work all over and you will have seen on the film um, the piece of, of work that happened in Finland um, which was outdoors that Mark Murphy directed um, and I think that we are we work with people because that's the way to create um, work that has resonance and has endurance given that we won't be there long term because we're itinerant because we don't have a, a venue we we parachute in and stir things up and then move on and that cre- creates some interesting conversations with people who are there all the time um, and and it it creates an opportunity I would say for an outsider to come in and look differently at, at where you are and who you are and, and what you do. We're making a piece of work at the moment in Essex called Sparks Will Fly 2012. And, and you know, why, there's, why is there a company who's based in Salford working in Essex? I think part of it is because um, <coughs> it, it, people in Essex don't see it as worthwhile making a piece of work that... Take, takes place outdoors and, and I mean I'm making huge generalisations sometimes it needs that outsider to come in and provoke things um, there's somebody at the back with their hand up the man, did you, with, your red, with the red scarf yeah great Yeah. Yeah. I think the the process that we use um, and how we I'll I'll give a specific example in Finland, um, which was that that piece that you saw. Um, we worked with young people um, in Finland. We worked with shipyard workers, with schools, with young people in the Academy of Applied Science and with puppetry students. And one of the things that happened as a result of... um, When we first arrived in Finland, there was a lot of... um, feeling like how come a how come a non Finnish company have come in to Finland to work with us in our year of culture. And as the process went on, um there was a feeling that uh people realised that perhaps at the moment there weren't artists who had the capacity to make the sort of scale of work that we we were we'd we were making. As a result of that process we had three young people from Finland came back and were employed by Walk the Plank last year. And I feel that what will happen in three years' time or five years' time or however long it takes, when Turku comes to make its next celebration or its next procession or, or whatever, it won't need to look outside of Turku because um, we worked in a way that empowered 
young people to to get involved. As, a, as another example of that, um, about eight years ago, Proboscis Studios were parachuted into Worthing um, to run a project in Worthing Library, and I was mightily pissed off that we had all this homegrown talent and that they'd bring in somebody else and commission somebody else. However... What Proboscis did was brilliant, it's great work, and I've now gone on to work with them. But for us as an arts organisation, it fired up our imagination and raised the bar for us and made us think, actually, you know, we have to get that good because I want to be getting those, those contracts next time round. I don't want it going outside. So it actually, it, it, it pushed us on and it, it did a lot of good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a question I ask every time we go and do a project somewhere that's not my hometown but all you can do is go in and do your best and be honest to people and, and try and build those, those relationships. Um, just on another side of that, I mean, I'd say, like, Mind, Mind Out was one that we... Actually, I don't think we necessarily got it absolutely right. Um, I thought the, commu- the theatre community would, would pick up the pieces. We didn't realise there'd be such a drop from three months of weekly dance sessions, ending a performance, like, we, we get drops after a tour or performing as professionals. That For this community group, the, there was this really massive drop, and with mental health issues, that was, that was terrible, and I thought we really didn't get that right. Like, building in a, a get-out strategy, an exit strategy that's, again, meaningful and real, is absolutely essential to projects like this. Um, with the military, we're, we're, we're still talking to them, we're still doing some work about sort of changing attitudes about disability at really high ranks now and and I think also for me like staying in a region staying in the West Midlands staying in Birmingham you have all these different facets which you, you can try and engage people with lots of different levels and you're kind of always there so, so there's a kind of benefit to, to, to staying somewhere Social media as well gives us a great way to carry on and, and do that exit strategy stuff because with social media you can leave the immediate area that you've been working in but stay in touch with those people on a daily or weekly basis and, and help and sort of nurture them. And certainly when we left South Kilburn, we left, but we've kept in touch with them, some of the people there and helped them carry on. Yeah, that whole pass it on thing. Jamie Oliver got it right, didn't he, when he went and worked somewhere in Rotherham or something. Pass it, pass it on. Um, I'm aware that I've not done what I said I was going to do, which is get people into small groups. But I'm also thinking that at the moment this feels intimate enough for people to be able to speak. Shall we carry on? Show of hands with a yes, let's carry on like this. Um, Okay, in which case we don't have to faff around with lines of chairs. And there's a question here and then there's another one there. This podcast is produced by Arts Council England. For more content like this, visit artscouncil.org.uk or soundcloud.com forward slash Arts Council England.